This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan coming to you from Gadigal Country. Have you ever used an illicit drug? Well, it's likely because 9 million Australians have. But not all of those Australians have faced criminal penalties. And the relative few who have are dealt lifelong consequences because they have a criminal history. Australia has been moving away from criminal penalties for some drug use, like cannabis, but there are experts who want to see a more comprehensive approach that focuses on harm reduction rather than jailing people. So what's the current state of decriminalisation in Australia? Medical student Abigail Leader joined the health report for a month to find out. I often think what would have happened if the police officer, instead of charging me, had recognised that I had a health issue and had offered me a referral to treatment. Just to have someone like a police officer saying, it's okay, mate, we understand that this is a health issue and you need help. That, to me, would have really changed my life. Drug use itself can be harmful. There can be consequences for your health, your relationships, your finances. But the way we respond to drug use can be harmful as well. Historically, we've thought of our interventions as a war on drugs, waged by police. But has a criminalised approach to drug policy ever really worked? And where does Australia stand on decriminalisation? In the 1990s, Australia was really at the forefront of these programs around the world. Professor Alison Ritter is the director of the Drug Policy Modelling Program at the University of New South Wales. She has helped shape drug policy in Australia, providing expert advice on the decriminalisation of personal drug use. Decriminalisation is the removal of criminal penalties for the personal use of drugs. The supply of drugs remains illegal and a criminal offence. For people like Professor Ritter, it's really important decriminalisation doesn't get confused with drug legalisation. Legalisation is the legalisation of both the use, the personal use of drugs, as well as the supply of drugs. You know, the equivalent of legalisation of drugs would be how we treat alcohol. It may include regulations on sales and so on, but basically the supply is legal and the consumption is legal. So this distinction is pretty vital. Decriminalisation isn't about removing all penalties, just the criminal ones, which have dominated for some time now. Australia signed on to UN treaties supporting the criminalisation of certain drugs throughout the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Up until around the 1990s, there was no decriminalisation of any drugs across Australia. It was all criminal. But, you know, from the mid-1990s onwards, it became really apparent that we needed to shift and reduce the criminal penalties associated with personal use. And this happened against a backdrop of a heroin epidemic and the HIV-AIDS crisis, which highlighted drug use as not just a criminal concern, but a public health one as well. And so many jurisdictions changed their approach, particularly in relation to cannabis. So the first places were South Australia, 
and the ACT in the early 1990s. And since around the early 2000s, every state and territory in Australia has an informal decriminalisation of cannabis. It's not written into law, so it's what we call de facto decriminalisation, which means it's still up to police discretion. The alternative to de facto decriminalisation is de jure decriminalisation, literally in law. Since the 1990s, both de facto and de jure decriminalisation have been occurring across Australia, reducing the criminal penalties handed out for drug offences. Where possession is still a crime, individuals who are caught with drugs go through the criminal justice system, attracting convictions and sometimes jail time. For some, treating drug use as a criminal offence reflects a principled position that Australia as a society does not endorse it. So some groups, like Drug Free Australia, argue that removing criminal penalties would normalise the use of drugs. Well, the underlying assumption of all prosecution is that it will act as a deterrent. Donald Weatherburn is a professor at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre. He was also the executive director of the New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research from 1988 until 2019. So the underlying assumption underpinning drug possession laws is that their existence makes people less likely to use an illegal drug or possess an illegal drug, and the imposition of a sanction on a particular individual makes them less likely to repeat it. And both those assumptions have been challenged. It's been argued that the benefits of prohibition outweigh are outweighed by the cost. I'm sure, though, the results of that vary enormously depending on what drug you're talking about. He says that criminalisation isn't necessarily driving down drug use in a substantial way. But is decriminalisation really the answer here? Won't removing criminal penalties mean more people take up drugs? Well, the answer to these questions might be overseas. One particular country at the front lines of the decriminalisation debate, Portugal. Located between Brazilian and Mexican cocaine markets... Spain's heroin corridor, Morocco's hashish producers and South Africa's liamba or cannabis farmers, Portugal is trickily placed. In the 1980s and 90s, the country was experiencing an increase in drug dealing, drug consumption and the consequences of unsafe injecting practices, which is why in 2001 they took a radical step. The important features of the Portuguese reform were that they decriminalised personal use of all drugs, but they also significantly invested in education and treatment. So there was a whole system of care and support that was built around the decriminalisation reforms. And I think other countries need to learn from that, that decriminalising in law is just one part of it. It's also providing the other support systems. Portugal's answer to that were commissions for the dissuasion of drug addiction, otherwise known as CDTs. CDTs are three-person panels made up of lawyers, social workers and medical professionals. When a drug user is referred to the commission, it discusses their motivations and decides on the appropriate action. That might be a sanction, community service, suspensions on professional licences or bans on attending designated places. For those dependent on drugs, the Commission might recommend treatment or education. What's been shown from the Portuguese experience is that a minority actually needed treatment, that the majority needed education, assessment and support. 
overdose rates declined, drug use rates did not increase, which is kind of the thing that most people worry about. It's been a very successful model. While these results are impressive, there are other public considerations. When you talk to people in Portugal, they find it is expensive and it does consume a lot of resources to run these commissions of dissuasion. So there is a view that you could do decriminalisation of personal use in other ways other than what's happened in Portugal. So while Portugal is the largest case study, where else can Australia look for real-world guidance on decriminalisation? France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Armenia, India... Okay, so there are a lot of countries moving forward with decriminalisation in one form or another. And obviously the United States, the vast majority of states there have various forms of decriminalisation and Canada as well. There's been this huge focus on Portugal because they went early and all these other places have done it and no one's been particularly concerned. There is a lot of strong evidence that shows that decriminalisation does not increase consumption. We know that from Australian data. We know that from overseas data. The takeaway message is that, you know, the sky has not fallen in. None of this is to say that there's data supporting a single decriminalisation model. When a country changes its drug laws, it does so in response to its unique challenges, to its drug landscape and to its political landscape as well. There's no way to conduct a randomised controlled trial on decriminalisation, and all these real-world experiments have confounders skewing their results. Nevertheless, many experts in the field agree that the international precedent is positive. Certainly we've seen a number of jurisdictions across the world decriminalise drug use. This is Professor Dan Lubman, a psychiatrist and professor of addiction studies at Monash. The big worry at the time was that would encourage drug use, um, that would create chaos and public disorder. And having this evidence now, what we can see is the reverse happens. Professor Lubman is also the Executive Clinical Director at the Turning Point Research Centre and has worked across mental health and drug treatment settings in both the UK and Australia. We can see that health outcomes improve, we can see that crime goes down, we can see that drug use doesn't increase and we can see that many people's lives are turned around and we see these really important outcomes. So we know it can work overseas, but what about in Australia? As Professor Ritter explains... Decriminalisation is already happening to varying extents across the country. There's a huge variety of programs. You can be diverted at the point of police detection, which is mostly what people imagine when we talk about decriminalisation. So police issue a warning notice or a fine or a referral. They're generally regarded as cannabis cautioning programs or drug diversion programs. Some programs are fine-based, so it's an administrative offence rather than a criminal offence and you get given a fine. Some of them are more focused on sort of education and referral for assessment as to whether you need treatment. While formal decriminalisation means all offenders are treated the same, de facto decriminalisation does not come with the same uniformity, leaving room for bias. We know that more people of non-white backgrounds are detected. This is not because there's more drug use. This is because they come to the attention of the police more often. So police can be accused of racism and discrimination. 
when it's de facto decriminalisation, when it's de jure, when it's in law and there's no choice, I actually think it protects the police and makes it very clear that everyone is treated the same under the law. 36% of Australians have used cannabis at least once in their lifetime and where they used it matters greatly. If caught in South Australia, 98% of cannabis users can expect to be diverted from the criminal justice system, while just over the border, in Western Australia, only 32% will be diverted. Head over to the ACT, and so long as you're an adult, private consumption of cannabis won't attract any penalty. Now imagine this variation, but across all illicit substances and at different points in the criminal justice system, and you'll start to get an idea of the complexity of Australia's approach to decriminalisation. It's a shame that we also have been slow to adopt a consistent approach across all jurisdictions. The variations between states and territories is quite large in terms of the amounts, the strike rates, the penalties and so on. It's important to differentiate between recreational drug users and those experiencing drug dependence or addiction. Professor Lubman again. You know, over 40% of Australians have used an illicit drug in their life. And if we're thinking our response to illicit drugs is essentially criminal penalties for anybody who's caught, it seems particularly harsh and seems out of kilter with what a sensible drug strategy should put in place. Having a criminal conviction can impact on your ability to get a job, impact on your ability to get stable housing. It can have lifelong consequences on how community sees you. If we're going to criminalise people for personal possession of drugs, we need to understand what these impacts are across their life. I remember smoking heroin for the first time and the next morning thinking to myself, oh, I don't know what all of the big fuss is about. Chris Goff can speak to the harms of criminalisation from his own experience. I ended up using it, you know, once a month became once a week and over the period of maybe six months to a year, I became dependent on heroin. Chris first dealt with the legal system in his early 20s. He was caught with cannabis and then later heroin. This was in the late 90s, so there was no diversion option at that stage. My family didn't understand, you know, what was happening to me and so they were quite cautious in providing support to me. For my mother, the idea of her son being a criminal was very foreign to her and really quite devastating. The drug convictions also significantly impacted Chris's employment. I simply disengaged with my employer because I was ashamed, because I didn't feel that I was going to keep my job and I didn't want my friends at work to know that I had these convictions. I moved to Hobart, which doesn't have a lot of drugs, and I don't know anybody in Hobart who uses drugs. I was free from drug use for a period of time, and then when I lost my job and moved to Melbourne, I became homeless in Melbourne because I couldn't find a job, and that again brought me back to drug use. It took over a decade for Chris to get out of this cycle. I started to engage with a nurse in a needle and syringe program. One of the things that she pointed out to me was a copy of a magazine that's produced by the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association. 
the nurse gave me this magazine and I opened it and inside were all of these stories about people who use drugs and their struggles with society and uh, the criminal justice system and the treatment system and it was an epiphany for me. I could use my experience and what I had considered as a waste of my life and flip it into something positive. And from there, I saw the goal of long-term employment and I headed down that path. The personal price of a criminal conviction is lifelong for even recreational drug users. As Chris made clear, that cost is compounded for the most vulnerable in our society. Over the last few decades, we've been reviewing a whole range of laws we have in place where we criminalise particular behaviours. A good example of that is, is suicide. You know, so until very recently, being suicidal or making a suicidal attempt used to be a criminal act that could garner you a criminal conviction. I think these days we realise that when people are suicidal, they need our love and compassion, not punishment. And, and so we've seen a whole change in that space around how we've gone from a criminalised response to actually providing really important supports and and strategies put in place to make sure that people who are suicidal get the help they need. I think that's a really important lesson when we think about the area of addiction. Many of the people that I see with addiction come because they're using drugs to cope with underlying issues that they are really struggling with, whether that be underlying trauma, including childhood trauma, whether that be mental health, or just really difficult life circumstances. Criminal sanctions, particularly prison, can make these circumstances worse. 50% of people leaving prison expect to be homeless at the end of their sentence. And the risk of overdose in the weeks following release is substantial. We need to think about how we help them deal with these issues and, and move away from their reliance on drugs as a solution. And that's why it's really important that we make sure that we have help really accessible and that we're able to provide the necessary support in a timely fashion. Drug treatment is notoriously expensive and inaccessible for many people. It's also underfunded. So it begs the question, could decriminalisation free up funds for these treatment programs? The bulk of the money that we spend on our national drug strategy is around law enforcement. And we only spend about 20% of that budget on treatment. That means that uh, even when people put up their hand for help, they can struggle to find the right support in the local community. And unfortunately, at the moment, we know that there's about half a million Australians who can't access or get help that they need because either of fear or judgment or because there's no local services available at this time in their community. Professor Lubman is worried criminalisation distracts from addiction as a health issue. I think the biggest challenge, though, is that because this whole area is so stigmatised, in fact, addiction is the most stigmatised health condition globally, and because we have this very punitive response to illicit drugs, we discourage people from putting their hand up for help. And certainly that's what we see. You know, in other health areas, the message is all about early intervention, whether we're talking about cancer, whether we're talking about heart disease, whether we're talking about mental health. It's about recognising the issue early and getting people to get help early because we know that's better both for the individual but also for the community. In this space, because it's so stigmatised and because there's that threat of punishment, unfortunately what we see is people waiting years or even decades before they get help. 
And that's not good for them or their families, but it's also not good for the economy. It's become increasingly clear that having a criminal conviction, especially a drug conviction, has quite damaging effects on employment and earnings prospects. Professor Weatherburn agrees the loss of productivity and earnings not only affects that individual, it's also harmful to the economy at large. We should all be concerned at anything which pushes down wages or increases unemployment, unless you can see obvious benefits from that. Now, you can see the benefit if it's an armed robber, but if you're talking about someone in possession of a small quantity of cannabis or some other drug, the net benefit isn't obvious. It's estimated state and territory governments spend a combined $1.6 billion implementing their illicit drug policies each year, 64% of which is just on law enforcement. A study published this year in the Journal of Substance Use and Addiction Treatment found that simply extending the cannabis cautioning scheme in New South Wales to all illicit drugs would cut the cost of current policies in half. And so there's a very strong financial argument as well as a human argument about why we need to revisit this issue and get our strategies right. So how do we get our strategies right? Is it simply about reallocating funding from policing to treatment? Professor Weatherburn reminded me of some logistical challenges. It's kind of not how the cabinet process works. You know, if health, for example, wants to expand treatment, they wouldn't go to cabinet and say, uh, can you give us, say, 30% of the money the police have currently got and put it in our budget? That would be a a recipe for a great deal of argument in cabinet. It's more likely they would go and say, look, treatment is effective. We don't have enough treatment resources. We need an increase in resources. It would then be up to the government to decide whether to fund that by taking money off police or some other agency or some other program. There is some momentum, though. Political parties of all stripes are reconsidering their drug policies. The Greens are even advocating for the decriminalisation of all personal drug use nationally. But Professor Weatherburn doesn't think that's likely to gain support. Public opinion surveys show quite clearly that while there's widespread support for decriminalisation of cannabis, there's nothing like that level of support for methamphetamine, cocaine, hallucinogens, for example. There's a very big difference in the public mind between legalising cannabis and legalising any other illegal drug. Once again, 36% of Australians have used cannabis in their lifetime, which explains why there's strong support not only for the decriminalisation, but for the legalisation of cannabis. Everybody knows somebody who's used it. Everybody has heard of somebody being convicted of a criminal offence for using it. And the people they're talking about aren't known to be involved in any other kind of crime. So it looks like otherwise law-abiding citizens are being severely treated with no obvious benefit. But that doesn't seem to be the case for the other drugs. There's some tolerance towards ecstasy and there's greater support now than there was a few years ago for treatment than for punishment. But that distinction really stands out to me. Professor Weatherburn thinks we might see uniform policies on cannabis across Australia in the near future. I'd be absolutely amazed if any uniformity of approach in relation to the other illicit drugs appeared, with the possible exception of ecstasy. The states and territories do differ greatly in their opinions of drugs such as methamphetamine. The ACT might see it as feasible, politically feasible, to decriminalise. You know, it's only partly about evidence. It's also about people's more general attitudes towards drug users. They often fail to realise that smoking and drinking are also drug use. And as many advocates for drug reform will point out, it seems a bit arbitrary which drug you accept and which drug you don't. 
And then there's the question of which sanctions would remain, even in a decriminalised model. In 2019, New South Wales undertook a six-month trial where festival goers caught with MDMA, or ecstasy, were issued a $400 fine. This infringement system, extrapolated to all drug crimes in the same period, would have saved the state $5.8 million in court avoidance alone. And yet, the study authors themselves warned that a system of fines would disproportionately impact disadvantaged people and could result in debt accumulation. So instead of fines, could drug users be referred to treatment programs? It depends hugely what sort of drug you're talking about. For example, in the original cannabis cautioning scheme, police were required to refer people who they picked up for cannabis possession to treatment, but only a tiny fraction thought they needed treatment and a a very small proportion ever turned up. Situations quite different for those who are dependent on heroin or opioids, where a great proportion of them would like to reduce their consumption or give up if they could. So access to treatment varies enormously depending on the amount of problems being caused by the drug and the availability of treatment for that kind of drug. It's really important that we balance strategies that reduce the significant harms associated with illicit drugs against the need to be able to provide compassionate and supportive responses to those people who are struggling. If it wasn't already clear, this is a complicated issue. Australia might not go as far as Portugal and decriminalise all drugs. But there is a middle ground. Education, diversion programs and treatment options that Professor Ritter believes can improve outcomes for not just individual drug users, but for society as a whole. I think there's sufficient evidence these programs are better for health and wellbeing and hugely cost-saving and should be really ramped up. All of them could do with a review and an improvement. Often we have people turning up here because their relationship with their family or their relationship with their partner has broken down and they're sleeping rough. The vast majority of people who access karma are unemployed, and I think that's really telling. Chris Goff is now the executive director of Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. We have a lot of people who end up being incarcerated and we support a lot of people to try and navigate that justice system. I asked him how his life might have been different had he been diverted to a treatment program rather than receiving convictions. I actually do think about this a lot. I'm I'm very proud of my life and I'm proud of where I am today. It's taken a lot of hard work. My job is very fulfilling and I get to give back to the community and I I get to educate people and I get to talk about the harms that come from drug use and the harms that come from drug criminalisation. But I often think what would have happened if the police officer, instead of charging me, had offered me a referral to treatment. I don't think that my relationship with my family and my employer and myself would have gone down the same track. While opinions differ about where Australia might end up, it's clear the country is moving beyond an outdated and ineffective war on drugs. I think at the moment with the decriminalisation debate, I think it's it's something that we all recognise is going to happen at some time. And the question is not if, but when. 
Dan Lubman, Professor of Addiction Studies, finishing off that story. You also heard from Professors Alison Ritter, Don Weatherburn, as well as Chris Goff from the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. Treatment is available for people dealing with drug dependence or addiction. You can contact the Alcohol and Drug Information Service for support and we'll have the details on our website. This story was reported by Abigail Leader and produced by Shelby Trainer. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.